This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au My name is Matt. If I've not met you before, lead pastor here at Anchor, part of the Erskineville Gospel Community or at least one of the two gospel communities that meet in Erskineville. Um, and it's good to see you here this morning. It's chilly today, so um, we might have to do a bit of hard work to warm up this morning. But a couple of quick things before we start. The first is that um, the front rows are very empty. What's going on, guys? Why don't you want to sit down the front? You should sit down the front. Hey, just here's, here's why you should sit down the front. Because, and if you're a new person, excuse me for highlighting your predicament this morning. But this is what happens. Generally, someone might come and they're new and they look for a seat near the back to kind of be a little bit anonymous because it's their first time and they don't find one. So they've got to do the, the gauntlet and walk straight down the middle in front of everyone and find a seat in the front. And it's not great. So one of the ways you can be a good welcomer here at Anchor is to sit down the front and you might get a better sermon anyway if you do that. The second thing that um, I wanted to draw your attention to is that we're going to have a two-week pause in our series of Acts over the next two weeks, and we've got the joy of some of our interns preaching over the holiday break, and so we're doing a two-part mini-series called Needy and Needed. Now, um, you might think, well, gosh, I don't really feel like a needy person, but the reality is we're all needy. And we're all needed. And so in the next two weeks, we're going to be hearing from some of our interns, from Mitch and from James. They're going to be preaching for us. So um, you get a break from, uh, from Acts, and uh, we'll jump back into Acts after the school holiday break. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 5 this morning, as Hope mentioned. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you take it out now and follow along? If you don't, that's fine. The verses will be on the screens behind me, and you can follow along there. I'm going to pray for us, that God would speak, that he would address us by his word. We believe that this word is living and active, that God wants to speak to us through it and transform our lives by his spirit. So let me pray. God, we thank you this morning that we pray to you knowing that you hear, that you are the God who bends your ear towards the prayers of your people. God, we pray that you would still our hearts now, that you would... Help us forget the distractions from the week that we've brought with us this morning and tune us into what you are trying to say to us. God, we pray as we see this beautiful paradox of what it looks like to live the Christian life, that you would stir this in us by your spirit and help us to live in a way that might, to this world, look so contradictory and weak but God, in the end, that we know that is the beautiful paradox of the gospel, the enigma of the gospel, that we lay our lives down in order to win them. And so God, we pray, speak to us now by your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. All right, Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, let me just give you a bit of, um, bit of context here where we've been. So last week we looked at Ananias and Sapphira, the, two, uh, the couple who sold a piece of property and then sought to deceive both the church and the Spirit of God by lying about the amount of money that they sold it for, seeking to hold some of it for themselves. Peter calls them out, calls them out. both Ananias and Sapphira die, and this great fear comes across the church. 
The apostles are working miracles and people are getting healed and the church is growing significantly. You see there in, uh, in verse 14, I think it is, that there are more than ever, more than ever people are coming to faith and the church is growing by multitudes of both men and women. So this is a, a sweet season of the blessing of God on this church. And then Acts chapter 5 Verse 17, it says this, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison door and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them and wondered what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Kind of so ironic there, because if you remember back to the crucifixion, the, the trial account, these very same men call the blood of Jesus upon themselves and their families. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be someone. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. What a good passage, and I've got so much to say about that this morning. Um, but before we get there, let me just um, say how disappointing uh, Wednesday night was to see the Blues go down to Queensland. And I realize some people have decided to provoke me this morning by wearing the Queensland colors. And in fact, Judah came up to me this morning just as church was starting. He said, Daddy, someone's wearing a Queensland scarf. <laughs> and so we shall ignore them because, um, you know, I was kind of really hoping to... Um, to come up here this morning and gloat and wear my jersey and do a bit of a dance. And so all of that is going to have to wait till the end of game three. Um, and it will happen. It will happen. But, you know, I, was, I noticed something unique about the post-game interviews this week. As they interviewed uh, a lot of the Blues players, there was this, this deep disappointment that they had lost this game, that it was theirs for the taking, and they, they hadn't finished what they knew they could do. And there was this disappointment there, but there was something different. In years gone past, when the Blues had lost after game two and faced the prospect of traveling to Brisbane to play at Suncorp Stadium or whatever it's called at the time, there was always this sense of despondency about it, hopelessness, because that seems like such an impossible task to beat them on their home soil. But this time, it was different. I don't know if anyone else noticed this. There was this confidence about the Blues. Like, yeah, it's disappointing, but we know we can win. We know that we can go to Queensland. We know our side is good enough to do this and to, to bring it home in Game 3 when we didn't do it here. They were confident losers. Now, that's a bit of a a paradox, an oxymoron, is it not, for someone who has just lost a game to then be confident about it. They're confident losers. And that paradox that we see there in that attitude is a similar paradox that we see all over chapter 5. There are just these oxymorons and paradoxes and enigmas all over the place. And so what I want to do this morning is dig into some of that. But I would go as far to say as the whole of the Christian life is a paradox. Listen to this quote from A.W. Tozer. A real Christian is an odd number anyway. I like that. An odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen. Talks familiarly every day with someone he cannot see. Expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another. Empties himself in order to be full. Admits he is wrong so he can be declared right goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he is weakest, richest when he is poorest, and happiest when he feels worst. He dies so that he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passeth knowledge. What a beautiful description of the Christian life. It is a paradox, a seeming contradiction. And I want to focus on two paradoxes we see here in Acts chapter 5 this morning. And the two paradoxes are this. The first is free prisoners. Free prisoners. And the second is joyful sufferers. Free prisoners and joyful sufferers. Firstly, free prisoners. Have, have a look at verse 18 with me. Come back to verse 18. The, the Sanhedrin arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison, but during the night... An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, 
Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. And so here again, the apostles are thrown into prison. And it seems it's more than just Peter and John this time. Maybe a number of the apostles, maybe all 12 of them, they're thrown in prison just like they were back at the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4. And in the middle of the night, God miraculously frees them by, the, by, by an angel and says to them, as prisoners, go and stand like free men in the temple and speak the good news. And there's this confusion that happens as the temple guard come to bring them before the Sanhedrin for trial and they're not there and they, they expect them to be there and they're perplexed and they don't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden, someone comes in and says, these prisoners, these men are standing in the temple teaching. They are free prisoners. And what I think Luke is doing here is he's wanting us to see that God is making a strong declaration that, yes, you might be able to lock my messengers up, but I will set them free because this is my mission. You see, according to the perspective of the Jewish rulers of the day, these men are criminals. They're in breach of a, an order of court that they were given back in chapter 4 to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. They ought to be locked up. They're a threat, but according to the perspective of heaven, these men are the very messengers, the ambassadors of God, and they are free, and they need to bring the message of this life, this good news of Jesus. Freed prisoners, that's how God works. In this beautiful paradox we see here, he is saying to us, you cannot contain my message. You can lock, you can silence you can silence them. You can put, put a gag order on them. They will speak. You can lock them in prison. I will set them free. You cannot contain the message of God. It cannot be chained. It cannot be silenced. It cannot be suppressed. It cannot be subdued. It cannot be muted. You cannot contain the message of God. And the first paradox we see here of freed prisoners screams that message to Luke's readers, that God has a plan and nothing will stop it. The good news will go out. And it seems here in another bizarre paradox that one of the Pharisees, a guy by the name of Gamaliel, understands that, at least to an extent. This is what he says as an unlikely ally of the, the apostles. In verse 34, he says this, but a Pharisee of the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Judas, Judas, these men, they rose up. And when they died, their followers scattered. Verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. You see, I think what Gamaliel assumes here is that the Christian movement is going to fizzle out. Yeah, look, it might have had a good start. Acts chapter 2, thousands of people, lots of favor on the apostles in the early church, but... It's going to fizzle out. And I think that's what Gamaliel assumes. But 
in this profound paradox how true his words are because these men have been opposing God. This is a work of God and they cannot stop it. I mean, that should have been evident to them even from this moment. They've tried to silence the apostles. It didn't work. They've tried to lock the apostles up. It didn't work. Gamaliel is a friendly enemy and an accidental prophet. That's a paradox. A friendly enemy and an accidental prophet. I think I was an accidental prophet once. It was um, earlier this year on the uh, Anchor Retreat. We were playing this game called Mafia. And I'd never played it before. And I kind of got brought into this game. And the, the point of the game is to guess the bad guys and kind of vote them out of the game. And so um, I just in my prophetic gifting, called out three assassins in a row and voted out the game and won. And um, so I, I was an accidental prophet at that point. But I'm declaring right now that I'm retired from Mafia on a winning record. I've got a 100% record of calling out assassins and I'm retired. That's it. Accidental prophet. A friendly enemy. What a paradox this is. Paradox number one. Freed prisoners. Freed prisoners. Confident losers. Maybe they're held captive by the law, but in the sight of God, in the sight of the kingdom, they're free. They're messengers of life. This is a statement that God is in control of his mission. That the good news will go out. That God has a plan that cannot, that cannot be overrun. You cannot contain the message of God. Free prisoners. Well, paradox number two is even more profound, and that is joyful sufferers. Joyful sufferers. Have a look at the end of verse 39 with me. So they, that is the Sanhedrin, took Gamaliel's advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, get this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease preaching, teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, did you notice that profound phrase in there? That they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer and be dishonored for the name of Jesus. That is a paradox that the gospel itself can only create. Literally, they're honored to be dishonored. They're graced to be disgraced. They're, they're celebrating, they're glad, they're joyful that they are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus, to be dishonored publicly for the name of Jesus. You see, the sentencing that happens here is that they're threatened again. They're told not to speak in the name of Jesus any longer, and then they're beaten. They're beaten. Now, the chances are this beating here is the 40 lashes minus one. It's the same beating that Jesus himself received. They would have been beaten or whipped across their chest, across their back. We know from history that this beating is so brutal and so severe that some people die at the end of it due to blood loss. But it seems the apostles, at least in this instance, 
are in good spirits, are in fairly good health, and maybe it's the case that the Jewish council decided not to beat them too harshly, too severely, because of their popularity amongst the people. And so this beating happens, and they're released, and they say, we rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. And opposite the, um, the anchor offices is the Malt and Shovel Brewery. It's the, the James Squire Brewery. And they've just finished this new signage that goes across their huge roller doors out the front of their, their brewery. And it says this, 150 lashes plus two barrels of ale. And if you're familiar with the James Squire story that we have turned into Australian folklore, you'll remember that James Squire was um, a convict who was brought here on the first fleet and was caught stealing supplies from the medical center that he worked in to make beer. And the governor sentenced him to 300 lashes in two parts plus two barrels of ale because he was such a good brewer of beer. And now in our... um, you know, Australia, I mean, only Australia turns criminals into heroes. Like, no other culture in the world does that. But we turn our criminals into heroes. Our, our convict narrative that we have turns James Squire into this hero who has had 150 lashes and two barrels of ale as his punishment for thievery. But here's the deal. He is not rejoicing in those 150 lashes in that moment, right? Yes, he's a, he is a legend. He was Australia's first brewer. He's still, they're still making beer today. But he's not rejoicing in that punishment, the 150 lashes. The apostles are. They rejoice. You've got to remember the first century is a, is a shame on a culture. Now, they operated with shame and honor. And this beating is intended to bring shame and dishonor on the apostles. And yet, in a beautiful paradox, it does the very opposite of what the Jewish council was hoping it would. It brought them honor. They were honored that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Joyful sufferers. That is an oxymoron. That is a a paradox. But I don't know about you, as I hear that, I think, how? How is that possible? And the only way that that kind of attitude is possible is if there is some truth, if there is some truth that points past the experience of pain that they experienced in that moment. And so I want to give you three reasons why they, and I think we too, can rejoice despite suffering. And there are more reasons than this, but I just want to highlight three this morning. So let's have a look at these. The first is there. you have a great reward. For those who suffer, you have a great reward. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 10. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For your reward is great in heaven. Think about eternity, he's saying. And from the perspective of eternity, as painful as the suffering is now, 
this is short-term pain for the long-term glory of eternity. You have a great reward. And I think that reward is a, a, a magnifying of the joy that you will experience knowing that you suffered for the name of Jesus. Friends, this is the experience of almost every other Christian outside of Western culture. You have a great reward. Secondly, as you suffer, you share in or you participate in the sufferings and glory of Jesus. This is what Peter says in his letter to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. Peter, remember, who is a part of the apostolic band here, who is beaten, he says this to the churches in 1 Peter 4.13. But rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Not that you share in the sacrificial sufferings of Jesus, somehow that your suffering contributes to the salvation of the world. You're not a Messiah. But that you participate in, that you share in the sufferings associated with following Jesus. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad. When his glory is revealed. Peter has this theme that goes throughout 1 Peter. Suffering first, glory later. Suffering first, glory later. And when we suffer for the name of Jesus, it says there we participate. That word is we fellowship. It's the same word for fellowship. We fellowship in the sufferings associated with following Jesus. We imitate him. We're like him. And as we rejoice in our sufferings, so we will rejoice and be glad in the glory that will be revealed when he comes. And so we, we can rejoice in the midst of our sufferings because we know that we have a great reward that lies ahead. and Because we know that as we participate in the sufferings, we will also participate in Christ's glory. And thirdly, because we know what it produces in us. Have a look at Romans 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We can rejoice because we know that as difficult and as painful and as hard as this thing is, God is working something good in and through it. It produces endurance. It produces character. And ultimately, it produces hope. And I think we live by those same truths. Whatever suffering that we're encountering, maybe for some of you, you are encountering a quota of suffering. Sure, it might not be as severe as this, but maybe it's that family mock you for your beliefs. Maybe it's at work that you are mocked on the job site. I remember a good friend of mine who was an apprentice electrician who was mocked every single day. To the point where at the Christmas party, his boss hired him an escort to lose his virginity with. Maybe, you're, maybe you are 
experiencing what it looks like to live in the margins of a culture that doesn't give two rips about the message of Jesus. But maybe, maybe your suffering isn't necessarily a result of owning the name of Christ. Maybe your suffering is just an experience of what it looks like to walk in this broken world. Whatever it is, these truths, we can live by them. I can have joy in the midst of suffering because I know I have a great reward. Because I know that as I participate in the sufferings, I will also participate in the glory. Because I know what it produces in me. I can be a joyful sufferer. A joyful sufferer. What a paradox the Christian life is. Created by the reality of eternity. That this life is not all that there is. That our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the future glory that lies ahead for us. We can. We must. Rejoice in the midst of it. And so our boys there, the apostles, are confident losers. I feel like I'm losing my voice right now, but I'm confident that I'm going to make it through to the end. And this is not southern comfort, it's just honey in water, (laughs) in case you were wondering. The apostles are confident losers, just like the blues, confident losers. Free prisoners, joyful sufferers, and that confidence that they have comes from both God's power at work and the promises that He has made. It comes from both God's power at work and the promises that He has made. Remember the promises that God has made? You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. You will. The name of Jesus will be proclaimed. That's the promise of God. But you also notice the power of God at work in a profound way in this church. Have a look at verse 12 with me. Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem and more than ever, more than ever, more than Acts chapter 2 where 2,000 people get saved, more than the end of chapter 4 where an additional few thousand people get saved, more than ever believers are being added to the Lord, multitudes, multitudes of both men and women. This is a profound, powerful work of God. And all these sick people are being laid. And even at Peter's shadow, it seems like people are getting healed. This is the power of God at work. His promises. His power. That is the the fuel that creates this paradoxical life that these apostles are living. Confident losers, free prisoners, joyful sufferers. But in reality, to live that paradox, it is only possible because of the paradox of the gospel. 
the seeming impossibility that the eternal Son of God would die. That Jesus would die on the cross so that you might live. This is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to, obtain through sal- uh, uh, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, that is when Jesus returns, if you're dead in the grave or if you're still living, we might live with him. Jesus died so that you might live. And in his death, He absorbs the wrath of God at our sin. And there is this beautiful exchange that takes place as he gives us life. And in the paradox of all paradoxes, Jesus says this is how we respond to this good news. In Luke 9, 24, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. See, what Jesus is saying there is that what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to secure and preserve your life is to take up the cross, lay down your life, and follow Jesus. And then to do that the next day and the next day and the next day for the rest of your life. That's what it looks like to preserve your life, to lay it down. I believe that there are many people here this morning who, in an attempt to have life, to preserve their life, are actually at risk of losing it because you haven't seen the perspective of eternity. You haven't seen what it looks like to actually lay your life down at the feet of Jesus, give it to him to secure real life. If you truly value your life, if you truly want to preserve life, then lay it down at the the feet of Jesus. Pick up your cross. Die to yourself and follow him. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. There are people here today who haven't done that, who haven't received the life, the eternal life that God has on offer. Today, I want to give you an opportunity. If you've not done that before, maybe you've been here at Anchor for years. Maybe this is your first time. Maybe you've been invited by a friend this morning. That if you have not seen what it is to preserve your life for eternity, that you would come in repentance and lay it down at the feet of Jesus, asking that he would absorb God's wrath at the sin in your life and offer you the free gift of eternal life in a paradoxical, beautiful exchange that takes place. For those of you who have already done that, who are living in this paradox, I want you to see that we ought to be confident losers. We ought to be confident losers. Yes, from the earthly perspective, this message is weak. We're marginalized, we might lose, but from the heavenly perspective, we know that Jesus wins. We ought to be confident Are we confident? Are we? We should be. 
Because our confidence comes from the same place as it did for the apostles. The promises of God, the power of God at work. We ought to be confident. We can be. We can live like this. Live in the reality of this paradox. As free prisoners, as joyful sufferers, as confident losers. I want to be able to say, I count it worthy. I count it worthy to suffer honor for the name of Jesus. I'm a joyful sufferer. And the fruit of a life like that is this image from verse 28. I want to close with this. Verse 28. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. With the message of the resurrection of Jesus. With the message that Jesus can wash away your sin. You have filled this city. (coughs) If you want to boil my vision down for this church, that's it. To fill this city with the message of Jesus. Now, I realize that's big. It's bigger than us. It requires other churches. It requires a move of God, really. But what a beautiful picture to fill the city with the message of Jesus. That his ambassadors, his representatives would be speaking the good news in bars and workshops, cafes and pubs. filling the city with the message of Jesus. My confidence is running out. My voice is gone. And let me just finish by this. (coughs) That happens because of faithful obedience to the commission of Jesus. Verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. I'm going to wrap up because I can't speak anymore. And we're going to respond in three ways. Our prayer team will be to the sides with orange lanyards on. They would love to pray for you. The Lord's Supper is to the side and the front. Come and dip the bread in the grape juice. Eat it remembering Jesus. And let's worship together. Do we do that? Dave, can you pray for us? Thanks, bro. Father, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you love us. Father, in our weakness, be strong. Father, would our identity rest in eternity, in all that you have stored up for us. Father, remove the distractions from us that hinder our ability to see who you are right now and who and how you are working in us. Father, thank you for your spirit that you are transforming us. Father, would we delight to worship you? Father, would we delight to live for you? Father, that all that we do 
would be to see how you are at work. And thank you that you are here with us, that you know what suffering is and that you overcome suffering, Father. Amen.